Hello, and welcome to the Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Ellen Mahoney, CEO and co-founder of the Circulus Institute, a U.S. nonprofit committed to developing social and emotional learning for adults, teachers, school leaders, and counselors. Ellen spent the past 17 years focused on building better student-teacher relationships, primarily in international schools, through mentoring programs. But she kept sensing that her work was hitting a brick wall because the adults she worked with needed time and space to build their own self-awareness and resilience and understand their own biases. Circulus and the International Social Emotional Competency Certification, or the ISEC as it's called, is the culmination of that realization, a set of courses and coaching built around teacher well-being. Starting the summer, Circulus will offer the first competency-based adult SCL certification. I invited Ellen on the show for two reasons. One, she's a leader in her field and an innovator who spotted a need and built to fill it. The other was a story she told me about working in a school in China. She was brought in because students were experiencing rising rates of depression, anxiety, and even violence in school, and they weren't coming to their teachers or counselors for support. The administration wanted to know why. One of the students said, said to me, and it basically summed up all of the conversations we were having, was that she said, Miss, our teachers are great, our counselors are great, we think they're good people, that's not the problem. The problem is, have you seen how stressed out they are? They're always so stressed. Why would I burden them with my own problems when they can barely handle their own, right? It kind of stopped me in my tracks. We all know that kids need to be well to learn well. And it's patently obvious that teachers need to not be super stressed out to be able to provide the millions of things kids need every day in a classroom or on Zoom. But teacher well-being has always taken a backseat to student well-being. The logic of this seems sound on one level. Schools are about educating children and young adults, not making teaching professionals feel better about themselves. But overlooked in that formula is the simple reality of the oxygen mask. You cannot help someone else if you cannot breathe. COVID made the world see how hard teaching is, but also, I hope, how human teachers are. They too have kids and health concerns and responsibilities way beyond just teaching our children. The better we support them, the better they can serve kids. This week's episode is sponsored by Smart Technologies. We will hear a little bit more from them later. Ellen Mahoney, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. Let's start at the beginning. You went to international schools. Where were you and what was that like? I grew up in Japan and Singapore and it was fabulous. I mean, it's sort of, I say it's like a, a privilege I didn't earn, but I definitely appreciate. I went to two very different types of schools that were both designed to support the, the foreign community. In Japan, it was a Catholic girls' school that had a deep mission towards social justice and environmental justice and sort of values education, which I think influenced me to this day as an educator. I mean, it was very international. There wasn't a majority population necessarily from one nation. And then in high school, I went to Singapore American School, which was a very American school in Southeast Asia, kind of more American than I think even American high schools with a football team and cheerleaders and an American curriculum. That was strange. But the best part about that was that as a teenager, I got to explore the city and, and learn language and try different foods and, and just, you know, make friends with people all over the world. So you had this experience of growing up in these hyper international and then American, but still quite international community. Over time, that leads you 
to mentoring in international schools to really focus on and help improve student-teacher relationships. What were the issues you were trying to address or what attracted you to that work? So even though I had this great experience overseas, I'm sort of looking back at it through rose-colored glasses. There are two big challenges as you're developing as a child in that community. One is that there's a lot of transients. So for sort of traditional expats, they might move every couple of years. So you're a new kid over and over and over again. If if you don't move and you just stay at school, your friends are moving constantly. So you're constantly saying goodbye. And so your relationship development is getting interrupted. And especially as you move into your adolescence, those relationships are so important for your own healthy development. So, um, you know, that's a big challenge. The other challenge, um, which was less of a challenge for me, but definitely a challenge I saw among my peers, is that there's a lot of people that have multicultural identities. So you could have a parent from Ghana, you could have a parent from France, you could be going to school in Thailand, but going to a school that is a British culture using a British curriculum. So it creates some challenges there just around identity development and positive identity development. And so those were challenges that I really wanted to address. I saw the repercussions of when those challenges weren't addressed in schools. And I lost a good friend to suicide when I was 19 for those very reasons. And a lot of us suffered depression and anxiety throughout our adulthood. So I really wanted to go back and just see if we could help teachers and schools intentionally by design create models of healthy relationships and identity affirming work in school. And so I did that through mentoring. Um, And for the last seven years, I've been helping international schools build mentoring programs, advisory programs, keeping that cultural context in, in mind the whole time. It seems so obvious that a teacher-student relationship is really important, but I'd love for you to explore that with me a little bit. A healthy teacher-student relationship is really the foundation for learning and well-being in schools. When students feel attached to their teachers, it's more likely that they'll experience a safe learning environment. If they have a safe learning environment, then they're more likely to feel comfortable taking risks and exploring ideas. And that is fundamental to real learning. So that's that's the learning rationale behind how important the teacher-student relationship is. But then also there's decades of research that in all kinds of aspects have shown us that if young people can have one caring adult outside of their parenting adults, whoever is taking care of them at home, they're more likely to have positive outcomes throughout the rest of their adulthood, whether it's career satisfaction, or mental health, physical health. That's you know longstanding research for decades that we continue to find. So, and in fact, that's why in the US an advisory program became popular in the 80s and 90s. It was based on that research that if a young person can have a caring adult in the school, then the outcomes are manifold. And also it allows the student to be advocated for. If there's one person in the building that can say, I know how school's going for you. I know what home, your home life is like, and I can connect you to resources and challenge your growth and, and you know, demonstrate care for you. If that's the metric we know to be very important, how do we then measure what's working, whether it's healthy? And I guess maybe what the baseline is to how we improve. Yeah, when I first started Sea Change Mentoring, I, I was struggling with how do I evaluate the work. I love research and I was kind of coming up with complicated 
measurement tools that I did not have the resources to employ, to be honest. And I I actually had this amazing researcher, Dr. Carla Herrera, on my advisory board. She's been a very influential person in the youth mentoring research world. And she helped me figure out how to evaluate if this is working. And she said, if the minimal viable product of your evaluation tool could simply be to measure the quality of the relationship between the teacher and students, specifically using a tool called the MQR, which is measures the mentoring quality within the relationship. Basically, what it boils down to is, does the student feel that their mentor cares about them, respects them? Do they feel safe around their mentor? There's a few questions around that. And you just, you kind of take the temperature of the work over the course of a year. The other way that I would suggest evaluating this kind of work is using, it's called the Hemingway scale, which was developed by Michael Karcher, Dr. Michael Karcher, who has studied adolescent connectedness, and it's which means how connected do young people feel to all parts of their world, their family, their community, but also school. So you can kind of take a look at how connected do they feel at school, meaning Do they feel that they belong? Do they feel a sense of purpose? Do they have friends? Are there adults in the building that they feel connected to? That's the Hemingway scale you said? Yeah. Yeah. Probably a good story as to why. There is a good story. (laughs) There is a good story, actually. Okay, I'll tell you. So there's another great mentoring researcher named uh, Michael Nakula. He was doing a lot of work on connectedness before Karcher came along. And Karcher was inspired by Nakula's research. And when Nakala was in school, he had a teacher that said, you know what, you write like Hemingway. And it was just a little comment, a passing comment, but it, it moved him so much. It, it inspired him. It made him think differently about himself. In the mentoring research, we call it thinking about your future self, uh, that mentors have an impact on children's future selves. So he could imagine himself in the future as a writer, and it changed the course of his career. He decided, I'm going to go to college. He was the first person in his family to go to college. And then he went on to academia. um, And he really feels like just that little comment was a turning point for him. He felt all of a sudden much more connected to school and to his future. That's such a great story. I know your key theory of change is that mentoring can improve student-teacher relationships, but I know the work you were doing, you felt like it wasn't getting deep enough. There were some walls that you were coming up against. What were those? I was feeling that, you know, I could design a beautiful mentoring program and we could put all of the best practices in place, but I kept coming against this wall, which was sort of the inner lives of teachers, teacher stress, teacher bias, teacher's own relationship skills. You know, I can help a teacher evaluate the quality of their relationship with a student, but if they are bringing their own trauma into the classroom, their own history of relationship challenges, and they're not given that space and time support and training to address those challenges, a great mentoring program will only go so far. So that was my big challenge. And I was also observing teacher stress, even in international schools where I was working, which you know tend to have a lot of resources the stress levels were so high. These are sort of high-performing schools and there's a lot of pressure on, on everybody, really. The story I think about that I, that I tell a lot is a school that I was working with in China where they were having higher and higher instances of depression and anxiety and um, even violence um, in their school population. And they 
they wanted the students to come to the teachers and talk to them if they were having problems and to come to the counseling staff, but they, the students weren't coming to them. So they asked me, you know, why can you help us figure out this? And can you help convince the kids to come talk to us when there's a problem? So I spent a week talking to all of these teenagers in the, in the upper school. And one of the students said, said to me, and it basically summed up all of the conversations we were having was that she said, miss, our teachers are great. Our counselors are great. We think they're good people. That's not the problem. The problem is, have you seen how stressed out they are? They're always so stressed. Why would I burden them with my own problems when they can barely handle their own, right? It kind of stopped me in my tracks. And that was probably the impetus for me to start thinking about, hold on a second. We really need to do better by teachers by giving them the training, support, and space to do this reflection work. There was another story you saw. I think it was in California. Tell us the story of Devante. So at the same time that I was making these observations and having these strong gut feelings about teacher well-being, this terrible story was being written about in the media about the Hart family, and specifically about this young boy named Devante Hart. Devante was a, a black boy in a, a large-ish family. Uh, he was adopted by white parents, and the parents were putting him on social media a lot to say, look at us, aren't we so progressive? You know, we're the, the best anti-racist family you could think of because look at how we are these white people and we've we're adopted this black son and you know together we're going to challenge racism and isn't that lovely and it was they were all over twitter twitter and social media and they, and they were getting lots of attention oh my gosh what an inspiring story and all the while they were abusing him behind closed doors they were neglecting him they were they weren't feeding him they were beating him and it was it was ter- a terrible terrible story and what struck me is that there were multiple opportunities for the adults around Devante to get him help and to get him away from his parents and nothing ever happened. And the reason why nothing happened was there was a few things that happened. Number one is that people didn't want to report the parents because they thought, well, but you know, on social media, they look like this great family and look at them. They're doing all this amazing progressive work. I must be wrong or I don't want to get involved. They were also a gay couple. And so some of the people that thought that the child was being abused didn't want to seem as being um, homophobic or prejudiced. And so they decided not to report the situation. And then the other situation is that a lot of people didn't know what neglect and abuse looks like. What, you know, when a child is being neglected and abused, they didn't recognize those signals. And so that just really, you know, you hear about those stories of abuse all over the place, but this one just really upset me. And I could not, I could not put the story down. And to me, it just made me think about, there are so many adults out there that are, that are sick and, or they aren't reflective. They aren't self-aware. They're bringing their own baggage into their family life, into society, and it impacts children. And so why don't we do more work supporting adults and being better people for our children's sake? And it also made me think, of course, also about, can we please make sure adults know what abuse and neglect look like? But those two stories were the stories that were, I mean, I felt like I was being haunted by those stories. I could not put them down. And so that that was another 
impetus for me to, to do this work. And so tell me what that led you to. So the Circulus Institute helps educators develop social and emotional competencies. So social emotional learning is the phrase of the day. Although, you know, just to be clear, it's not really a, a fad. It's been around for many years by different names for the probably the last 100 years. I think we just have better data now to understand what works and that it works. Um, but yeah, so Circulus Institute helps educators really do the personal work that's required for them to be able to really reach students, help them be well and help them to learn. So we provide professional development experiences and then we have a, a certification program that helps really deepen educators' reflective practice. I think what's interesting about this is most of us, when we think about social emotional learning, we think about it in the context of students. And so you're putting this in the context of teachers. Do you expect there to be kind of wide open embrace of this or maybe some resistance to it? Because it's sort of based on this idea that you need help, that you want help, and that you're willing to be that vulnerable. So what challenges do you see there? I definitely expect resistance because I've seen that kind of resistance throughout my whole career around this kind of work. Teachers are saying, I'm stressed. I have anxiety. I even have depression. And I would like help, but I may not want to ask for help within my school community because I don't feel supported. I feel like there's a stigma to it, you know, what have you. So there's, there is some of that, that that's happening. You have to expect resistance, especially if we're going to be talking about things like cultural awareness and anti-bias education. You know, we're here in the U.S. right now, as if you're following what's happening in the American education system, there's a huge backlash against culturally responsive teaching. I think that the resistance I've seen in the past in the in the mentoring work that I've done comes about because teachers feel inadequately prepared to do the work, or they feel that I didn't get into this profession to be some kid's counselor, <laughs> you know, um, which is I agree. I don't want you to be the counselor. I just want you to be a little more present. I want to provide you the supports to manage your emotions because we know that really has a major impact on young people. But the resistant educators are actually my favorite educators to work with because I think they're telling you a story that's really important to listen to. What is their resistance telling you? Maybe there's something about your the design of your program or the delivery of the program that is is missing something and they're telling you that you're missing this point they're also really important to work with of course because they can get in the way of the whole school adopting this work so i think what the way we've kind of thought about that is so in in our certification program it's it's called the international social and emotional competencies certification, the ISEC. And it's a one-year program where teachers start with the competency of self-awareness. And they spend time on that where they start to work on their emotional regulation, recognizing their own emotions, the impact of their emotions on other people, how to cope with strong emotions in the classroom, some self-efficacy work, for example. And we help them to build a reflective practice that they're going to use with us throughout the whole year. Then we move them on to social awareness, which is things like compassion and relationship skills and conflict resolution. And we finally move them into cultural awareness, which is anti-bias education, collective efficacy, cultural responsiveness, et cetera. 
that last one that I just talked about is the one that we kind of expect to have the most resistance. And that's why we start with the self first. So the self-awareness piece, there's so much compassion that we show our teachers at that place. So we're, we're giving them space, time, coaches, a cohort of peers where they can start to kind of flex that muscle of being a little more vulnerable where it's appropriate and a lot more reflective. And they're going to start seeing results pretty quickly as it relates to their own personal resilience. And so I think the idea is that if we can start there and gradually work our way up to more challenging and more challenging skill building, then we'll be able to meet that resistance more effectively. Give us a sense of what a component of each of those might look like. What does the component of self-awareness training look like? My partner, uh, Kristen Daniel, is amazing, and she is a great designer of adult learning experiences. So we use all the best practices of adult learning. And for us, that includes we put all of the teachers into small cohorts, small enough so that they can have really meaningful conversations with each other. And that cohort gets their own coach. And so the coach sort of models how they can be supporting each other and talking with each other and socially problem solving. Um, so that's a big component of actually of each section that we that we work on. And then we do provide you know, the knowledge and content that they have to know, but it's all skills-based. So we're a competency-based certification program, which is what we know from the research is going to have the most lasting impact. We think about transferring the skills that they're learning in our in our coursework into their actual work, then the competency development is really key. So as they're learning about what it takes to develop these skills, like emotional regulation, for example, they're also being asked to go back and apply those skills in their classroom, in their personal lives, and then reflecting on that application. They're even getting feedback from students at various points throughout the year, being very open about, you know, I'm working on this. Let's have a a conversation about what that might look like in the classroom for you. Okay, now we're gonna hear more from our sponsor, Jonathan Moore, engagement manager responsible for strategic alliances at Smart Technologies. You might know Smart as the maker of whiteboards, but Jonathan's here to tell us about some of the other smart things Smart is doing, including a self-assessment tool. Jonathan, tell me what a smart ed tech self-assessment tool can do. Using the assessment tool can help education institutions identify how to get the most from their ed tech and hopefully improve outcomes for their learners. Why should schools do one? Smart ed tech self-assessment tool is free and can help leaders address issues to uncovering perhaps why ed tech isn't having the desired effect to improve outcomes. It provides a framework to reflect and unite people and provides an area to focus. And what are the five main pillars that you are looking at? The five main pillars are leadership, professional development, implementation, infrastructure, and recently added, obviously, blended and hybrid learning. Is this just for US schools? It's used internationally. In fact, it's been used in Australia, Spain, UK, Middle East. It's actually been used by government in Europe to identify key areas of focus. Who takes part in the EdTech self-assessment? Is it just the leader? The leader would reflect and include the key stakeholders that are responsible for the areas of those sort of five pillars. So I think the strength is the fact of taking on board everyone's views and opinions and formulating that plan to help people move forward. 
Give me a sense as to how you came up with some of the questions that the assessment addresses. We've taken the assessment tool and we've linked it to research. And it, essentially, it's a synthesis of other well-known and trusted organisations such as OECD, NACE, UNESCO and CASEL. Do you have any evidence that this works? It's the responses of thousands of education institutions and able to identify a key correlation between those schools that have scored highly on the self-review and have improved outcomes. Results show that schools where technology capability uh, has been rated as high also report the best teaching and learning. And results, in fact, educators report highest level of capabilities were 10 times more likely to observe high outcomes. If as a school we do an assessment, how do we get to see the results? It's easily provided either individually as a school or aggregated organisational report can be obtained. The senior leadership then have simple identify areas of focus designed in a matrix. Jonathan Moore, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jenny. For more information, go to smarttech.com forward slash profile. Again, that's smarttech.com forward slash profile. Let's talk a little bit about bias. So how would bias get in the way of forming that relationship? Again, it feels super obvious, but I'd love you to maybe take me through some really concrete examples of biases that teachers often carry into a classroom and what that looks like. The one that's keeping me up at night the most lately is this adultification bias. It's a concept that's been discussed in positive youth development for for a couple of decades. I want to say since the early 90s, if I'm correct on that. But adultification is when we think or we treat young people as if they're adults, which is, it's kind of complicated. When a young person becomes a teenager, on one hand, you you don't want to condescend to them. So you don't want to use baby talk with a 16-year-old if you want to get anything done. You know, you really, they want to be treated like adults in the sense that they want to be respected. You see it a lot with Black girls in the U.S., just to give you an example. So with Black girls in in middle school and in high school, there is typically a bias that teachers will bring into the school where they expect more of those Black girls compared to the white girls they might be going to school with. For example, I might have two 13-year-olds in my class, a white girl and a Black girl, and the white girl makes a mistake. She's a 13-year-old girl. And let's say she gets into an argument with her friend and she shoves her friend out of frustration. Her friend is really hurt physically and emotionally. There's a lot of tears. You know, what's our reaction to that student? Typically, we think you're only 13. You know, you're not, you're barely a teenager. So let's have a conversation about how you can avoid that. You know, let let me help you ask for forgiveness from that person. You know, let's talk about how we can regulate our emotions better. Let me nurture you. You're just, you're just a kid. But adultification is if that same scenario happens, but the 13 year old is a black girl, then I might think, you know what? You look a lot older than a 13 year old. In my mind, I'm expecting black girls to be much more mature. And so you should have known better. And so instead of taking a nurturing perspective or a, hey, kids make mistakes, that's why we're here, it's I'm going to take more of a punishing and more disciplinarian angle with her. So I might say, you know what, you should have known better. You know, why are you so aggressive? Go down to the principal's office. And you see that if if you look at, you know, the same kind of challenges that kids might be going through behaviorally. Black girls are more likely to be the receiver of that approach. It's this adultified approach. And it's it's challenging. I mean, this is where 
you get more and more black girls in detention and suspension and problems at school, which then they perceive the injustice of that. And you see kids dropping out of school and getting into more and more trouble, you know, and then the the, the storyline goes on from there. So that's an example, one, one example of many of the biases we bring into teaching because we are human beings, you know, living in a, in a world that is imperfect. Did you do some research into what teacher training programs do and also what kind of professional development resources exist? Is this a sort of big, busy area into which you are entering? I did, and I'll tell you why I looked into that. I was reflecting on my own education. When I was in graduate school for school counseling, you had to go through a process of looking at your biases with an open mind and a lot of humility, you know? And you had to think about any trauma that you may have experienced and what would that impact your relationship to particular clients? For example, if I was sexually assaulted as a child and then I have a client who is seeing me because they have been violent towards a child, you know, am I in the right place to be able to provide that person mental health support? And if I'm not, then I need to refer that person. And that's my ethical duty to refer that person to someone that can see this person. So it's really important work. It's part of our ethical code in, in the psychology world. And, um, and it was powerful for me. It was really, it helped me understand where my biases were. And I had to do a lot of personal work to address that, but I continue to work on it. So it's an ongoing process. When I had this conversation with my partner, Kristen, she comes from the special education field and same thing, because you have to think of a young person as a whole child, when you're learning about special education, you, you do have to do a lot of this inner work. So I just assumed that teacher education programs also provided lots of opportunity for this personal development. And I found when I was doing the research, I, was, I found that it's extremely rare. It's increased a little bit now that social emotional learning is becoming more popular. But even just a few years ago, there was only a few universities in the Americas that were doing pre-service training on adult SEL. University of British Columbia was probably the first and they've done the most work on this, but it was very limited. Literally, I think it was three or four as of a few years ago. Now we're seeing that change a little bit. So there's that. I will say I since then I've learned about other countries that are doing similar interesting work in their pre-service work. It's it's still very, very rare. I think, you know, in Israel, there's some changes that are happening right now in their teacher training. In New Zealand, for years, they have tried to build their pre-service teacher training on the their original people's values, which comes down to a lot of relationship building and community work. So there's a couple of outliers out there, but it's it really doesn't exist. And then as far as once people become teachers, there's training here and there. Not a lot of it is effective. A lot of it doesn't, they don't use um, adult learning principles. It's not ongoing. You know, it might be like a one-off here and there. And we know that that's going to have very little impact. There's been, you know, anti-bias training, for example. A lot of anti-bias training is ineffective. It might last for a couple of days. You might have a better vocabulary, but that deeper work hasn't really been that effective. Um, again, because we're not really employing these adult learning principles. And then on top of that, schools weren't really prioritizing giving teachers the time and space and resources to do that work. 
So you decided to build Circulus. You're doing this work, the research, looking at the principles, building it, and then COVID hits. What happens then? <laughs> yeah, it was it was good and bad. I mean, it was so frustrating because we were building the certification about six months before COVID hit China. And we had this big event that was a, a retreat for the educators that were going to enter into the certification work with us. And the retreat was scheduled in Japan for, um, I think it was the last week of February and half of the teachers that were gonna be in the program were from China. And so obviously that didn't happen, which was super frustrating. But at the same time, I started hearing from um, schools that I work with in China and Japan, India, Thailand, Malaysia, and then the next wave over to Italy, um, for example. And, and school leaders and teachers were reaching out saying, we are at our breaking point. And this was only you know, in April, let's say. We're at our breaking point. We don't know what to do. We, we don't know how to connect with the kids. Our teachers are so stressed out. How are we gonna get through this? And so my partner and I quickly pivoted you could call it a pivot, but it was sort of almost an iteration or a shifting of our focus a little bit, which was we decided the most pressing issue right now was resilience, was educator resilience. How can we help educators, A, recognize the skills they already have within themselves that can get through through this really difficult time, B, upskill them, you know, help them develop more skills or further refine those skills, and then C, can we get them to a place where they have enough resilience and energy to turn back to their school community and provide that for others in a way that's sustainable and lasting? So we developed this course called Reclaiming Your Resilience. And it was amazing. It was just a, it was a really poignant experience. We had teachers from all over the world, what, you know, dealing with all different kinds of life circumstances because of COVID. That was a really powerful experience. So we did that for a while until people kind of got their breath. And then we went back to building the certification process and we're launching the certification this summer and in the fall. Does the resilience curriculum feed into the certification? Were you able to build on it? And did you learn from things this year that will modify or affect how you think about the certification you're developing? Yes, on both counts. So the resilience work has informed the first part of the certification process, which is the self-awareness piece. So there is some resilience work within that self-awareness piece. You know, how am I doing? What do I need right now? Is this behavior harming or hurting me? Those sorts of things. And all of that work definitely came through our work around educator resilience. As far as what we learned from that resilience coursework and, and what we can bring into the certification. You know, we designed the course and then we hoped it was going to work, right? You know, we put it out there and it honestly shocked us how much it did work. We weren't sure if educators would really have the capacity, given everything that was going on in their lives to, for example, sit down on Zoom again, you know, and, and talk with colleagues about some of their raw feelings or about their, their fear of failure or about how ineffective they felt or how isolated they felt, you know, was this going to be too much for them to handle? Is it too much of a burden in an already really difficult year? But we found that that was their favorite part. Their favorite part was having the opportunity to talk with other educators around the world and see that they were not alone 
and that there was support there among their peers. And then also to get that sort of support around sort of social problem solving. And they were also building their kind of their social capital to deal with some of these challenges. So I think that was really powerful for us to see that, yes, they're able to do this. And my greatest fear is to waste teachers' time. Time is so hard to come by as a teacher. I'm a former teacher. I know what it feels like. So we were we didn't want this to take away or be another add-on for them. But again, what we've found is that it's been a real capacity builder for them. So I think, you know, taking those observations, we're bringing those best parts into the certification process. And we built very similar designs around the cohort and the coaching model that supplements some of the coursework. So you were able to kind of accelerate a beta. I mean, nobody wanted this situation, but in a sense, you have way more demand than you ever would have had under normal circumstances. You had to move fast and build this thing. And then you could test both the design of it as well as sort of the content. Okay, we don't have much time. So I have a few more questions. Certification, why certify? Why do I need a certification? You know, we, we played with a couple of different ideas here, but the certification idea was that, you know, I can go to a series of workshops, Jenny, and around educator resilience or self-awareness or anti-bias education but just because I went to those workshops or I went to, a, I, you know, I took a year long course on this. Do you really know that I have developed those skills? Not necessarily. And if you look at the data out there, it's likely that the learning that I learned in those workshops won't last very long or might not transfer. So the certification idea was let's design something where we can really focus on skill development and where educators will have to show their improvement in those skill building. So we knew that would have to be a prolonged experience. It would have to be a year-long experience. We knew that it would have to be skill-oriented. Now, you can go through all of this work without getting your certification. Basically, you can just say, I attended these courses. But if you want to be certified in adult social-emotional learning, then you have to show a portfolio of your demonstrated skills that includes student feedback throughout the year and includes some project-based learning. So we review that portfolio. And if we see that improvement of skill development, then you've earned that certification. And we think that's really important because as educators are looking for teachers and leaders who have experience in social emotional learning and they're looking for teachers that are going to be resilient in stressful times who can manage change who have done their own anti-bias work we think the certification says i've demonstrated that i've developed these skills it's not that i just attended some workshops and so we're really trying to elevate this work by providing certification how much demand do you think there is for this There's a lot of talk about teacher burnout. There's also talk of burnout in every single profession that exists on the planet right now. I mean, everyone's burned out. So I'm curious whether you can help us understand the problem. Yes, everyone is stressed, right? And everyone is burned out. But when you look at the teaching profession, the the levels of stress and depression are, are generally higher. If you look at, in the United Kingdom, the teacher well-being index from 2020, they they found that depression among teachers is about at 32%, which is higher. The national average is around 19%. So it's definitely higher. In the United States, teaching is one of the most stressful jobs that you can have. The only one that's above it is nursing. So there is that demand. But you also look at attrition numbers. And attrition is really serious in the United States. Prior to COVID, one in six teachers 
this is from the um, Rand Corporation has done a series of reports since 2012 on teacher well-being, attrition, and burnout. And they were finding that it's about one in six teachers every year, you know, plans to leave the profession since COVID has happened. Now it's one in four, 58% of teachers say that if they could go back to the beginning of their careers, they would, they would never have become teachers in the first place. That the main reason why people leave the profession is around well-being and stress. And those numbers are higher for our BIPOC population. So the need is definitely there. At the same time, you have organizations like CASEL, which is the Collective for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. They have been you know, taking a look at the research and really trying to get out across the United States, not just how important social-emotional learning is, but that if we're going to implement social and emotional learning effectively, we have to make investing in adult social and emotional learning a priority. And in fact, now we have our COVID relief funding for schools is, is out and available. And CASEL has said that schools need to make adult SEL a top priority. So you're actually now seeing, and this is all based on tons of research. They're, they're an excellent organization. So, so now you're seeing schools and districts really starting to invest in this adult SEL. The problem is there's just not a lot, lot out there yet. So there's a, I think there's a growing demand and there's just not a lot of quality services out there yet. And that's what we're hoping to change. Ellen, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and for your work. And good luck with the launching of the certification program this summer. Thank you so much, Jenny. It's great to be on. I attended a virtual conference on the return to work this week. A pair of McKinsey partners discussed the importance of job satisfaction to life satisfaction and the role good managers play in influencing that job satisfaction. The problem, they noted, was that many people have crap managers and companies need to invest some serious time and energy in training managers to build wait for it, social and emotional skills. I tell you this because education and business often operate in separate realms, but in both, there is a growing realization that we need to prioritize well-being and relationships, mindsets like humility, skills like problem solving, or they won't just materialize. In education, most of the conversation is about making sure kids develop these skills. What I love about Ellen's work is it cuts straight to how to help the kids, which is by helping the adults who control their lives for six to eight hours a day for most of the year. Ellen's own story and how she got into creating this adult SEL certification is telling. At every step along the way, she was trying to improve relationships through mentoring. The wall she was hitting was the adults. She could see their pain and despair, often in the form of resistance to her work, and kept digging to get better solutions. The ISEC is an attempt to codify that work. We are all pretty broken in one way or another, so I applaud this work. For the educators who deserve the time and space to heal, and the kids who benefit from more healed adults. Who knows, maybe one day they will make brilliant managers. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.